This is exactly right. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk for a minute about Akron, Ohio. It's a historical site for pop and rock music, it turns out. It's where the Black Keys met and Devo. It's Chrissy Hines' hometown, the city she wrote My City Was Gone about. And then that song became the theme for the Rush Limbaugh show, and that makes me feel bad. And somewhere in that city, there's a Sheraton Hotel lobby that for a brief moment in 1991 was a magic portal. You walked into that lobby And if you sang for the right person in the right way, you walked out with a life that was changed forever. Yvette Nicole Brown sang a song called Go Outside in the Rain for Michael Bivens in that hotel, and her life changed course. And that same night, in that same place, a young guy who was about to start his freshman year at Ohio University tried the same thing. I I sang for him in a hotel lobby at like two in the morning, and he called me the next day. And he was like, I want to offer you a record deal. And I was like, whatever. Hayden Haidu was 18, a jock with a voice big enough to fill a Sheraton Hotel atrium. He sang for Michael Bivens, and his life took a detour, one that went right through the East Coast family, one that lasted about a decade, one that involves Beyonce. He's going to tell us about it right now on Waiting for Impact, a Dave Holmes passion project. While Hayden Haidu's life was changing, so was the rest of popular music. Later in the show, we're going to go deep on the pop charts of 1991 and why that was the year that changed everything about what got played on the radio with one of my favorite writers, Chris Melanfi. You're going to learn something really interesting about the week that changed pop music forever. The week Nirvana's Nevermind took the number one spot away from Michael Jackson's Dangerous. But here's what we've learned so far about Sudden Impact. We know Sudden Impact was one of the first artists to join Michael Bivens' East Coast family. We know he got them signed to Motown. We know Bivens was so enthusiastic about them, so certain they would succeed, like Boys to Men, ABC, BBD, that he put them in the music video for Motown Philly. We know Motown Philly was inescapable in 1991. The three big places you could watch music videos back then, MTV, VH1, and BET, played it all day long. We know that after Motown Philly, Sudden Impact changed their name to White Guys, W-H-Y-T-G-I-Z-E, but we don't know why. We know that in the wake of Boys to Men's success in 1991, Bivens began expanding the East Coast family. He signed rappers, vocal groups, singers. And we know that one of those singers is someone we now know as Yvette Nicole Brown, who joined the East Coast family after angrily singing and Michael Bivens in that same magical Sheraton lobby. And we know that in 1992, Bivens gathered all his protégés together to record a single and video called One For All For One. They did a whole album, actually, East Coast Family Volume 1. 
One for all for one. The song and the video are pure 1992. The raps mostly ziggity sound like ziggity this because that's what rappers did that year. It combines elements of the new jack swing sound that was hot at the time with the heavy hip hop beats that were becoming more popular. It's what we would later call a posse track. Chris Melanfi will tell you more about this in a little bit. Besides Yvette and White Guys, there are a couple standouts in this video for me. One, a kid who introduces himself as Bivens' cousin, Fruit Punch. He says, Yo, my name is Fruit Punch, but I don't get out much. Which is an alarming thing for a child to say. There's a rap duo called 1010, two kids who both look about 10, both with their suspenders on backwards like Criss Cross was doing at the time. And then, about a third of the way through, the guy Yvette told me should have been huge, Hayden Hyden. He only goes by his first name, Hayden. A corn-fed white guy with a sport coat over his shoulder, looking every bit the Midwestern fraternity boy he was one chance meeting away from becoming. Hayden can fucking sing. And with Yvette's help, I got in touch with him. Initially, I'm hoping he'll be the guy who hooks me up with sudden impact, and I still hope that. But once I start talking to him, I find that I just want to know everything. He didn't get the fame and fortune he expected when he got that phone call from Michael Bivens. But he seems genuinely happy. Maybe what he got was something better. I was in the East Coast family. So I was a solo artist um, signed to Bit 10 Records. When I speak with Hayden over Zoom, he's in his basement back in Ohio. He looks about the same as he did in the video. He's unassuming, friendly. The music business is a memory for Hayden now. And probably a complicated one. When my album was due for release, two weeks before my album was released, the CEO of Motown, uh, Gerald Busby, resigned. So they put me on hold, and I was kind of in holding patterns. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Hayden Haidu grew up in Akron, Ohio. He was an athlete, a football player, but one who also liked to sing. And in the 80s, you were supposed to stay in your lane. Mixing sports with the arts? Unthinkable. Zac Efron and Corbin Blue hadn't even been invented yet. That's a high school musical reference. I, I sang in choir. Um, my senior year, I did a play by by Birdie. But this was like before, you know, now you have athletes that want to get into acting because, you know, Disney's really popular and it's the end thing. When I was in high school, like, if you played football, you didn't, like, do the acting thing. You know what I mean? You were either an athlete or so I was kind of, you know, I was kind of breaking a barrier, I think. Hayden's plan was to go to college, but he wasn't much of a student, and his football career wasn't enough to get him a scholarship. So he applied to Ohio University, and he sang for them. I ended up going to OU and was offered um, a vocal scholarship. I went down and sang for them because I didn't have the grades. But late that summer, just before he was about to start his freshman year, Hayden decided to take bold action. Before I went down, uh, Michael Bivens, the Bell Biv DeVoe, was doing a tour, and um, they were in Ohio, in Akron, Ohio, and that was right when Michael Vivens had founded Boys to Men. So every time he came off tour in his hotel, there were thousands of people going to sing for him. Yeah, join that East Coast family. Yeah, yeah, right. And a buddy of mine called, and he's like, dude, you got to get down here and sing for him. When you showed up at that hotel lobby to sing for Michael Vivens, what did you want? Did you, did you know, like, what, what did you picture I think honestly, I was I, I had no I had no idea. I was so innocent. 
I, I, I wish I could go, you know, like I knew I could sing, but I just got up and just sang, um, you know, and I didn't, I didn't have any, you know, I, my buddy called me and I just went up there and all these people were singing and actually I was just waiting. And, um, I was like the last person to sing for him. And he just, he wrote down my number on like a little gum wrapper. You know what happened next. Bivens called and offered Hayden a record deal. Now you may be asking yourself, how does Michael Bivens have the clout to just be tossing recording contracts out to strangers in Sheraton hotel lobbies? It's a good question. And we will try to answer it later in the episode. But Bivens told Hayden, I'll call you back in two weeks, write a song. Hayden had never written a song, but he figured he'd learn. He actually did go down to Ohio University to start his freshman year. But put yourself in his shoes. One of the biggest pop stars on the planet says he's going to make you a pop star. And you're going to focus on poli sci 101 or whatever? Get out of here. I was wet behind the ears. You know, I was a Midwest kid from Ohio who, you know, I mean, I signed my record deal and then I went off to OU my freshman year. So I didn't even go to class. You know, I was like, I'm out of here. You know, I mean, it was not it was not a good mix for me. <laughs> I bet. Was there money involved at that stage? Well, yeah. So um, when I signed when I signed the deal at first, yeah, they gave me a little bit of money. And then I just went to college and he was like, look, you know, we got to get things set up. And um, so it, it was about seven or eight months in. And then I started going out to L.A. quite a bit. And it was just too hard for me to do both. So, you know, my dad was kind of like, are you sure you want to do this? And I was like, I'm out. You know, at 18 years old, get to move to L.A. and kind of work on an album. Yeah. And then once the ball started rolling and, and you got signed, what, what were you picturing? I think in my mind, I thought I was going to, like, be a superstar. Honestly, I think I thought like, and I don't say this in a in a bragging way because I'm older now, but but I I don't think I realized maybe the talent that God gave me. And then when I started working with like real professionals, and they were like, "You're you're really good." They settled on an image for Hayden. They wanted to make him like a '90s blue-eyed soul man. They recorded an album, and Bivens kept working on Hayden. If you know the story of New Edition, you know these guys worked their asses off to be the biggest and the best. And Michael Bivens expected that kind of discipline from his artists. The Big Ten label was more, they were really hands-on, right? You know, Mike's, Mike's a different dude. Like, you know, I would be in an airport and he would be like, dude, get on the tarp, like, get on the, you know, get up and sit, start singing. He was like old school Motown. Oh, yeah. Like embarrassing moments. Like we'd be at a restaurant, he'd be like, stand up, start singing. And people are like, what are you doing? So wait, so what, what does that feel like to have to do that? You're like, you're, well, you don't want to crap, you don't want to crap your pants because you're, you know, yeah, you're, you know, every time you do something, it's like, it's live or die with him. You know, he grew up with, you know, he was from an era where, you know, you, you worked for everything. You, he wanted to make you a real artist. Right. So, um, at the time you don't know that, you know, at some point you're thinking, am I, am I filling up this guy's ego or what's the point, what's the point? But then when you look back, you know, I think he really wanted to prepare you for, you know, um, you know, I mean, New Edition, they're one of the hardest working groups, you know, um, you know, they had 16 hour rehearsals with Brooke Payne. So he was all about he really wanted you to become an artist. If you remember, Yvette said she loved that Hayden album. And Yvette does not lie. Hayden's proud of it, too. It's got a cover of Steely Dan's Peg with gospel group Take Six doing the background vocals. They made a video for the first single, Funhouse, with Hayden kind of doing a James Dean thing out in the California desert. Motown was on board. The album was about to drop. You finish your record. 
Um, and then, then what happens? Well, I, I, I get home to Cleveland and we shoot a video and it's like, we're ready to go. Like we're looking for a promotional tour, two, three weeks. And then all of a sudden, Joe, you know, I get a call, Gerald Busby's resigned, you know, obviously Motown's on hold. This is a tale as old as time. A big executive gets excited about you, signs you to a deal, invests some time and money into you. And then that executive goes somewhere new. Maybe they get fired. Maybe they just get a new job somewhere else. But you can't follow that executive to where they go because you're under contract to the place they signed you to. You're obligated to the place and not the person. And the new executive comes in, and that new executive has projects that they're excited to invest some time and money into. And you're not one of them. Actually, the album we did was, it was a really good album, but it just, it never surfaced because, you know, when Gerald Busby left Motown, there, there was a, quite a hiatus for a while. I'll say a couple things here. One, after I spoke with Hayden, I emailed him to ask whether it's possible to hear that album anywhere. And as of now, he hasn't gotten back to me. It might be a sore spot. I would understand if it were but I'm dying to hear that record. And two, I tried to track down Gerald Busby, and he died in 2008. But Hayden's album sat on a shelf. It's nobody's fault. It's just the way it goes. It's actually the way it goes a lot. I don't think anyone goes in and makes an album and says, this is, this is going to fail. Especially then, because, you know, at the time, Mo, like, you know, I, Motown probably spent one and a half million dollars on my album. I honestly believe that if we would have released that album, it, it could have been pretty big because I would have been like, the, he was kind of marketing me as like the new version of Elvis in a way. So it was very R&B, but like we redid Love Me Tender from Elvis. And it was like, it was, you know, it was just a, there was nobody in the industry, you know, that was doing what I was doing. I always tell my wife, she loves Justin Timberlake. I'm like, he stole, he stole everything from me. Man, Justin Timberlake cannot catch a break this year, can he? Hayden's debut album is Gathering Dust. Motown's not releasing it, and because he's under contract, nobody else can release it. So Hayden is in a holding pattern. He's in Hollywood, collecting a stipend, playing golf, starting to drink a little. Like his album, he's just sitting there, waiting. Bivens is trying to find some side projects for me to do. And at this point, you know, we're becoming like brothers. We're really tight because we've kind of been through the war together. And I think in his defense, you know, he was pushing this Midwestern white kid in era where, you know, like, you know, there was no cross pollination of like music and he's trying to figure out his way and I'm hammering him like, dude, I'm ready to go. And through all that, I think we're, we're really close, but you know, it was like, it was like almost, it was a year of just, you know, I mean, I got really good at golf, right? I played a lot of golf. I, I mean, that year of not doing anything and get 2,500 bucks a month is, you know, for a 20-year-old kid, it's not bad when you're living at home. Early 90s, that's not bad. No, not bad. So, um, yeah, so I was just put on hold. But I was still trying to, like, I really wanted to, because I had gotten the L.A. bug now, right? So I'm like, now, you know, before it was like, I just want to go sing. But then, you know, I've seen some pockets of fame, and I'm like, you know, being famous wouldn't be terrible. Hayden was getting frustrated. His college years had passed him by. His hopes had been raised and then dashed too many times. Something had to give. We did a demo, and then we, we ended up doing a couple of other songs outside of what he was having us do. And uh, eventually we got a deal with Columbia that was out, you know, that was not a part of Michael Bivens at all. And that's when our relationship just, it, it ended. And I've reached out a few times, but... How did you leave it? Well, so I, 
you know, at the time we had hired an attorney, he called Mike and it was like breaking up with your, it was like a breakup. You know, it was like, Hey, I'm, I'm going to sign with Columbia. I'm not going to be with Biv 10. And it was like, it was sad. You know, I mean, I, I, I cried a little bit after that, but you know, look, I was, I had probably been on hold for, you know, I had put my life in Mike's hands from the time I was 18 to now we're talking, it, it was probably 23. So at some point I got to say, am I going to continue, you know, and, and, and I didn't, I couldn't really see the forest through the trees. I had to make a tough decision for myself and what I thought was best. I kind of moved on and, you know, my attorney was like, that was unbelievable. Like I, he's like, you two grown men just broke up. Like two heterosexual males just broke up. Now I can't help but notice as Hayden says this, that he's not angry. There don't seem to be any lingering hard feelings. It may have been a heterosexual breakup, but as with Yvette, it's pretty obvious. Hayden still loves Michael Bivens. The music world turned upside down in 1991 as the smooth, listen-at-work sounds of Top 40 Radio gave way to alternative and hip-hop. For some more insight on that, I turned to my friend Chris Melanfi. Now, Chris is a music critic, a pop chart analyst, the host of the podcast Hit Parade. But back in 91, he was an obsessive just like me. Who were you in 1991? <laughs> uh, let's see. A pop fan who also cared about hip-hop and alternative music, a writer for my college music magazine, a guy who read Billboard every week, because that's the kind of nerd I am. I've been that nerd since the mid to late 80s. So that's me. Great. I love it. And now, look at you. Uh, yeah, in my Bowie t-shirt, 50 years old. <laughs> I knew the pop music world that Sudden Impact, Yvette Nicole Brown, and Hayden were trying to break into really changed around this time. But I hadn't really thought about how that all happened until I got a hold of Chris. It all boils down to a barcode scanner. 91 is the year, it's the BCAD moment of chart following because it's the year of SoundScan. It's the year that SoundScan is added to the album chart in May, the Hot 100 in November. And it utterly changes our understanding of how songs and albums become hits. Billboard magazine is a music industry trade publication whose album and singles charts are the gold standard. It's the singles chart Casey Kasem used for American Top 40. That's how legit it is. And starting in 1991, they began using Nielsen SoundScan, data collected from scanners at record store cash registers. You bought a record, the person behind the counter waved the wand thing at it, it went boop, that information went to Nielsen, who sold it to Billboard, and that's how they compiled the sales chart. Which makes sense. It makes so much sense, you kind of have to ask, what had we been doing? We had, or Billboard had, been phoning and faxing retailers and radio programmers to ask them, give me your top 30 records this week or whatever. And then they would rank them. It wasn't as if the system was devoid of data, but it was very imprecise and frankly, fudgeable data. Fudgeable is my favorite adjective for it because it suggests all sorts of nefariousness without actually coming out and saying it. So up until this point, the album and singles charts that I had grown up following were tabulated by like rumor. And what it did was it taught us that the patterns that we had been assuming albums and singles would follow were basically all wrong. The simple way I like to say it is albums open like movies. We used to think that an album would open somewhere in the middle of the chart and then rise to number one or number five or whatever. Uh, -uh. An album's biggest week is its first week. And we only learned that through SoundScan. 
prior to 1991, there'd only ever been six number one debuts in the history of the album chart in like 40 years. Uh, I can name them off the top of my head. Please do. Two by Elton John, one by Stevie Wonder, one by Bruce Springsteen, one by Whitney Houston, and one by Michael Jackson. Um, And after SoundScan, the first one was by Skid Row. Right. Right. Not to disparage Skid Row. They were at the peak of their popularity, but Skid Row were clearly disparage Skid Row, if you want. Like they were they were big for hair metal in nineteen ninety one, but like they were not even the biggest hair metal band at the time. Yet they were the first scouts sound scan, excuse me, the first act in the sound scan era to debut at number one on the album chart. They that's a record nobody can ever t- take away from them. When Skid Row debuts at number one with a record that doesn't even have a single on the radio, you know. The culture is changing. And what it told you right away is, oh, this is not special anymore. This is just going to keep happening week after week. And now, if you look at the album chart, most weeks, you know, call it 30 to 40 weeks out of a 52-week year, the new number one album is a debut. It's a brand new album because it opens like a box office hit. It opens like a movie, right? Avengers Endgame doesn't open at number 10 and rise to number one. Avengers Endgame starts at number one and then gradually drifts down. That's how albums open too. Singles charts, the top 40, you know, what Casey Kasem used to do. They're a combination of record sales and radio airplay. And in 1991, Nielsen also debuted Broadcast Data Systems an early version of Shazam that listened to and reported which songs radio stations were actually playing. Previously, Billboard had just had to take the word of record stores and radio stations, but now they had the real raw data. The big sound, just before the change, was adult contemporary. Michael Bolton, Wilson Phillips, Amy Grant, which just keep her song Baby Baby in the back of your mind for later in this series. You might want to go to YouTube and watch the video, that's all I'm going to say. It's possible, and I'm not making accusations here, I'm just saying it's possible that the middle-aged white men who ran radio stations and owned record stores might maybe have overrepresented the -the middle-of-the-road white adult contemporary artists that they were comfortable with. Like Chris says, it was fudgeable, until it wasn't. The pop charts had reflected what record stores and radio stations said people were buying and listening to. In 91, they began to reflect what people were actually buying and listening to. How then do the the pop charts start sounding different? I mean, you're already already seeing hip-hop make a run at the charts prior to SoundScan, right? You've already seen everybody from MC Hammer to Vanilla Ice to Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch you know, make a run. Tone Loke in 1989 got a couple of top three hits. But what changes is that now it's much more plausible that rap can top the Hot 100. Uh, The very first, this is not a terribly hardcore street rap record, but the very first number one on the Hot 100, the week they flipped the switch towards SoundScan and BDS is uh, Set Adrift on Memory Bliss by PM Dawn. That's a very poppy, catchy, mainstream-friendly record, which was already in the top five before they flipped the switch. But by the following summer, Baby Got Back by Sir Mix-a-Lot. It's hard to picture that record spending five weeks at number one without sound scan, accurately tallying sales and airplay. Um, And then, you know, within a few years, Tupac is scoring, you know, a number one hit, you know, Puff Daddy is scoring number one hits. Like, all of that is really, you know, Bone Thugs and Harmony score a number one hit. 
All of that's kind of unimaginable before SoundScan. SoundScan makes that plausible. Like Chris, I was in college that winter when Nirvana's Nevermind went to number one. It was astonishing. Something so strange and so seemingly unradio friendly becoming an actual hit. It was a sea change. I watched it happen, but it wasn't until just now, talking to Chris, that I thought about how it happened. So, like, I mean, you know, the Nevermind phenomenon, right? That's unimaginable without SoundScan. That's more on the album chart than the singles chart, although Smells Like Teen Spirit is a top 10 hit. It goes to number six. Just breaking in here really quickly to tell you, I could talk to Chris Melanfi about what songs peaked at what position on the chart all day long. And for all of the terrible things the internet has done, I am so glad it has facilitated this conversation. But get this. But that fabled moment that everybody talks about where Nevermind knocks out Michael Jackson's Dangerous, that is entirely due to SoundScan. I actually did a whole Hit Parade episode about this moment because it's actually a widely understood moment. According to Billboard's chart dating system, it happened two weeks into January 1992. The honest truth is that because there's a lag between when Billboard collects its data and when they date their charts, what really happened is that basically all of the teenagers who got Dangerous or some other album for Christmas went to the record store and either returned it or used their gift cards to buy Nevermind. Because the data that was collected the week that Nevermind went to number one was all collected basically like Boxing Day through New Year's. So basically that week that all the kids are home from school, they are voting with their dollars. Teenage rebellion by way of gift card. I love it. But what we were learning was that the young people with disposable income who buy records and drive trends and dictate what gets played on the radio were going for something harder and heavier than what Hayden and Sudden Impact slash white guys were trying to make. The market for a blue-eyed soul singer or a boy band who looks a little like New Kids on the Block was less friendly than it seemed just a few months before. But let's talk about Michael Bivens and how he found himself in the position to sign all these acts. Bivens' story as a performer begins years before this with New Edition, but his time as a record mogul begins in the spring of 1990 with one song. Do you remember hearing the song Poison for the first time? This would have been at the end of our freshman year. I probably was working a shift at my campus job, which was the Durfee Sweet Shop at Yale in New Haven, Connecticut. And I'm pretty sure that that's where I heard Poison for the first time. And that record is just catchy as hell. And it it leaps out of the speakers like a rap record. Poison sounded like nothing that had been played on Top 40 radio before. Bell Biv DeVoe described their sound as mentally hip hop smoothed out on the R&B tip with a pop feel appeal to it. It's a mouthful, but it's accurate. And then after Poison, Do Me, a song so filthy you couldn't believe you were hearing it on the radio in the daytime. And the fact that Do Me came right after and Do Me was just as huge. Um, and there was, I remember, you know, I was already a billboard reader in college and there were radio programmers kind of fretting a little bit about do me. Cause like, can we play this record during, you know, sort of the homework hour, the, the hour when the, the really young kids are listening, you know, like, do they know what, you know, is, is he doing her hair? I remember this quote in a billboard story of like a radio programmer, like, 
you know, I, I'm playing the regular version and we haven't done anything to it because they don't actually curse in it, but it's pretty filthy, you know, and yet they were playing it, you know. But it was that kind of PG-13 content, that hip-hop-inflected production, that mixture of pop and R&B, that... Mentally hip-hop smoothed out on the R&B tip with a pop fell pill. Yeah, that that made Motown take notice. I think that Michael Bivens... But the reason he got away with, you know, playing with house money, as it were, was that A, he had had an enormous hit and B, he had he was helping the labels solve a, a problem they were having. You know, my most recent episode of Hit Parade, the one that just came out a couple of weeks ago, is about Millie Vanilli. And one of the arguments I make about Millie Vanilli was that whether, you know, fraudulent as they were, they were important to the hybridization of rap and pop on Top 40 Radio in 1989 and 90. They actually even appeared on Billboard's first hot rap singles chart like that that's a little remembered fact between like kid and play and rob bass and dj easy rock like they they had enough yeah. cred for at least a single or two to appear on the rap singles chart. Yeah. and yeah. what this the problem that bell biv devoe were solving by 90 was that they were much more authentic sounding yet they came out of what was previously a boy band so they had pop but they had hip-hop street cred and they they you know, nobody was accusing Bell Biv DeVoe of being phony. Not many anyway. And and so it, it sounded authentically hip hop and yet it was smooth like pop. And so if I'm a record executive in 1991, I'm like, if Michael Bivens wants to start shepherding other acts and get me another Bell Biv DeVoe, like I'm all ears, you know? A thing I really should have known is that somewhere in New Haven, Connecticut, a 20-year-old Chris Melanfi was watching that Motown Philly video and clocking the same thing I was. And and what's funny about Motown Philly when when Boys to Men show up, I remember being slightly cynical about Boys to Men, even though I loved Motown Philly, the song, because I'm like, this video is just one long branding exercise. And it's it's their first single, and it mentions other artists. It mentions ABC and BBD, which is like, it's, that's big of them. To, yeah. You know, include other like promos for other artists in their debut single. I guess, or, or it's, or it's the price of fame, you know, the, the ticket for entry, right? Is that Michael Bivens says, I'll record you guys, but you got to promote my other acts while you're there. Yeah. And then in the video, as we're getting our, our family portraits taken, old-timey style with the cape and the bit, the thing that you hold. We meet five young men in five white shirts and five neckties <laughs> called Sudden Impact. And that's the first and last time we see them. Right. Right. Do, do you remember that moment? Like, do you remember seeing it? Do you remember it in real time? All I remember about it, if I'm being honest, to reiterate something I said a little while ago, is... This added to my cynicism because, okay, correct me if I'm wrong, by the time Motown Philly hit or dropped, another bad creation had at least had a hit or two. Playground yeah. and Aisha. Aisha. I, I think yeah. Aisha was first. Aisha was, yeah. Yeah, and they were both top 10 hits. So like, okay, at least they're promoting an act that's actually had a couple of hits and BBD the prior year had been huge. But like, I'm watching this, you know, Michael Bivens brand extension and I'm sort of like, well, this is a little cheesy, you know, like he's already promoting an act that doesn't exist yet. I, I remembered thinking like, you know, fair play to Michael Bivens, but this is really cheesy, you know, like don't hate the player, hate the game, except that phrase didn't exist in 1991. God, but, we should have invented it. 
Yeah, I know. Uh, it, it's, it is an introduction to the Michael Bivens extended cinematic universe. Right. Another thing that didn't exist in 1991, but that's exactly it. Yeah. Let's talk about Chris for a minute. He's taken his obsessions and made a career out of them, and so have I. But neither of those careers even existed when we were 20. Chris, in, in 1991, mm-hmm. where did you see yourself at 50? <laughs> I'm not sure. Did I, you have a clear idea of where you wanted to go? I mean, the reason I can't answer this from the vantage point of 1991, I've often said this, is that a lot of things had to be invented for me to have this particular career. Like right through the 90s, I was writing record reviews for CMJ, making, you know, beer money to do that while I had a, you know, a completely separate day job. But like blogging had to be invented. Podcasts had to be invented. The whole ecosystem of online journalism had to be invented. And then I discovered, oh, actually, if you write about your nerdy obsession, your nerdy passion about the charts and dissect them and, you know, write like a critic, but analyze the charts, people will want to read that. But that didn't really catch on until the late aughts and tens. So, yeah. Are you happy? I mean, I'm real happy with how this whole thing's going. Yeah. Like I said, my my brainstorm, my one brainstorm was I realized that there were critics who didn't really understand how the charts worked. And there were chart analysts who didn't write like critics. And so if you could blend the two, write like a critic but under, understand how the charts work, just because out of my own passion, I've been following the charts since the early to mid-80s, that could be something. And yeah, and so what's great is that, you know, when folks like you want somebody to talk at a minutia level, like we, you and I just had, about how the charts function, but then placing it in a cultural context, folks generally come to me, which is great. I love playing that role. So there's today's lesson, kids. That thing you love more than anything, that thing you know more about than anyone, keep exploring it. Keep learning about it. There's a perfect job for you out there. You're just going to have to invent it. But back in the 90s, especially if you wanted to be a pop star, you needed other people's help. Powerful people could make you, and they could break you. When we left Hayden, he had just broken up with Michael Bivens and Biv10 Records after years of waiting for his moment. He got a new manager and became a part of a new group. He ran into three guys from New Jersey um, who were looking for a lead singer. And we ended up linking up. Uh, We got together. We made a demo. And uh, we ended up leaving Michael Bivens, which I think to this day, you know, him and I haven't talked since then. So uh, it was, was, you know, him and I, it it was almost like a divorce. But that group was called Signature. Signature is, of course, spelled S-Y-G-N-A-T-U-R-E. I don't know what was going on in the 90s with the creative spellings. But Signature's manager was about to become a big deal in his own right, thanks to a daughter who you might have heard of. Beyonce's dad, Matthew Knowles, was our manager. Yeah, you heard him. Yeah, Beyonce's dad. And it's 1998. Destiny's Child is taking off. And though Signature had begun as a vocal group in the style of the sexy R&B groups of the time, like Jodeci and Drew Hill... Matthew Knowles noticed a change in the atmosphere. When Destiny's Child at the time went on tour with Backstreet Boys, he really changed the direction, right? He saw how good Backstreet Boys did, and I think he saw dollar signs, and he kind of changed the direction of kind of what we were doing. So we were really more of a a real R&B group. 
So we actually were signed to the Urban Division of Columbia Records. So it was right around there, you know, Carson Daly, TRL. I mean, we. Uh, so our first tour was we were the opening act for Christina Aguilera. It was Christina Aguilera, Destiny Child. There was another group. We were like the pre-opening act, right? Just going to interject here real quick and tell you the other group was Soul Decision. This story just got so 1999, my tips frosted themselves. We didn't ride a tour bus, but we were really close with Destiny's Child. We really, we, we rode the coattails of their success because Beyonce's dad was our manager. So we were doing a mall tour and we were doing like, we were doing a team people mall tour with them. And then we were doing like outdoor arenas. And then we went overseas to London and um, Ireland and did some stuff over there. But this chapter in Hayden's career was the same as the last. More waiting for the record label to push the album. More trying to get his manager's attention while someone else became a superstar. Although this time it was Beyonce. When Hayden sang for Michael Bivens in that hotel lobby, he was 18. Now, he was 27. We were on tour. We were doing, we were singing with Destiny's Child. You know, we had done this tour. We had gone to Europe. We had come back. Our album still wasn't being released. I had noticed what I would say is some shady stuff from Matthew Knowles. I was seeing some things that I was like, you know, I don't like not taking money from us because we weren't making money, but like what's going on? And, you know, I ended up approaching first. I talked to the guys in the group and said, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm done. Like this is two years. The album's not released. Like what are they doing with us? And I said, look, here's the deal. I'm, I'm, I'm going solo. Like I'm going to go do my solo thing. I've talked to our attorney. He's like, Hey, then I got five record labels that will sign you tomorrow. They're ready. You know, and I said, guys, the minute I make it, I'll put you on. So I approached Matthew. Um, that conversation did not go well. It wasn't like the Michael Bivens thing. It just wasn't a good conversation. I got on a plane. I flew home. I was set to go to New York like the following weekend. And my attorney called and was like, dude, you're done. Like nobody's going to meet with you. Like you, there's, there's some really bad rumors about you and Matthew Knowles had a lot of power at this moment in time with Destiny's Child blowing up. He had proven he could make you or break you. Just ask LaToya Luckett or Farrah Franklin or Latavia Robertson. And those are the people he kicked out of Destiny's Child that we know about. We can't say for sure whether it was Matthew who started those rumors, but we can say they worked. Can I take you back to that call with your lawyer? Yeah. Where, when he said, you know, nobody wants to take a meeting. What, what did that feel like? Uh, awful. Moment? Like everything, yeah. uh, I mean, I can't, it was, it was awful. It was terrible because that's, that had been, that be, had become my identity. Right. I mean, I went from like, you know, I was like, I live in a small little community in between Akron and Cleveland and Cleveland's not that big. When I came back from Biff 10, man, I mean, I was like the shit, you know, like he had made it. Not many guys, you know, LeBron James made it. You know what I mean? James Ingram made it, but like nobody from my era, you know what I mean? Like I had made it, like I, I had credibility with the urban crowd with the, you know, and, and I mean, so, um, yeah, man, my pride and ego, you know, that's what it, it, it was devastating. You know, even my friends are like, dude, do you need to talk to someone? And I'm like, I'm good. But deep down, you know, it was like, it wasn't good. Hayden was nearly 10 years into his music career and he was out of options. He stayed in Ohio. He got a job selling used cars. I went through like a, you know, I mean, I went from playing, even though you're the opening act, right? Playing in arenas to like, I had to go sell cars. And I live in a community where they're like, dude, what happened? And I just, I, I would act like nothing was wrong, but it, it got, it got pretty bad to me. So I ended up, um, 
you know, I started drinking a ton, um, just fell into like a really bad, like drinking depression. Things go sideways in a million different ways for everyone. Yep. No matter what it is Absolutely. that you set out to do in life, you know, jobs go away and plans change. There is a special kind of, I don't know if shame is the word, that the world makes you feel if your plan was an artistic one. There is something about, you know, going back to that hometown after going to the big city to, to make your dream happen and having it not pan out the way that you had planned that can make you feel a different kind of way. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, shame is shame's pretty dangerous, right? Like, you know, you have guilt and shame, right? And, you know, you're guilty because you did something wrong, right? But shame is like the penance that you give yourself for doing something. So, you know, people don't jump off bridges because they're guilty. They jump off bridges because they're filled with shame. And shame is like, you know, it, and that's, I think you're exactly right. I think most of my friends, if I ask them, what are you really passionate about? They would say the Cleveland Browns. And I am too, right? But it's not the same. When you're passionate about something, artistic people who are like working to, you know, I mean, think about how many people you know who are like playing in bars and doing local things just because they love to sing. And they would not trade that for the world because it, it like, it stirs up emotions inside of you. It feeds your soul. But most people either have something, but they never want to take the chance or they've never even opened up the door the opportunity to figure out what they're passionate about so that small group of people it's hard it's hard to go from like doing that to getting a regular and not that that's i don't want to say regular but you know i um yeah like that's why you see so many fame like sports stars when they retire they get super depressed like i didn't want to do I wasn't built to be a regular person. There's a lot of shame when you're artistic and you fail because it's, and also like if you fail at your job, most of the time you didn't create that product. You're selling someone else's product. When you're an artist, right? Or you're a writer, that's your product. That's you. They're not. So you feel like you're not only rejecting my, I'm in sales now, right? I I'm in sales for a living. It's a company says we don't, you know, I'm in, um, I'm, I, I'm a uh, consultant for a technology company. If they don't like our backup recovery service, I don't hang up the phone and go, God, why don't they like that? I'm like, yeah, but if they don't like your song, you're like, wait, why? What? No, no, no. Why don't, what, what don't you like about it? Um, you said something that I, that I want to like push back on a little yeah. bit. You said, you know, when, when you, when you, you know, go for your dreams and you fail, a certain thing happens. Do you think that you failed? No, I don't think I failed. No, I think um, I was thrown a curveball, um, or it just like sometimes I think it's things just aren't meant to go, um, you know, the way that what our expectations are. You know, expectations are resentments waiting to happen, right? And I, you can put expectations on things, and I think what my expectations were from when I started to when it ended were very different, but I don't think it was a failure because I think, you know, I, I think I've, I, um, failure is a strong word. So I, I think you're right. I don't think it was a failure. Yeah. It just didn't end the way that I probably envisioned in the beginning. Right. But where I am now was 
nowhere where I envisioned. You know, I'm sure it's the same for you, right? Like what you're doing now is not at all what you thought you'd be doing at 21. Sure. Right. Yeah, I'm I'm not as rich as I would like to be, but I'm happier than I thought I'd be. Well, yeah, and if you were, yeah, and and happiness has nothing to do with like how much money you have. No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, it's nice, you know, like not having to worry about paying a bill ever is fantastic. I'm sure that would be lovely. But I would spend it on some crap I didn't need anyway. I don't think Hayden failed. I don't think Hayden thinks Hayden failed. And yet, as we talk, I keep trying to figure out how it could still happen for Hayden. I'm trained to think in those terms, even as we talk about how small-minded it is to think in those terms. You know, I want to fix it, but I can't fix it because it's not broken. I've had some opportunities, Dave. I've had, you know, I had uh, the executive producer of The Voice call me and say, hey, you know, I, uh, I became friends with a guy named Jeremy Spun, who uh, is pretty high up with the, the show, The Voice. Um, and he's reached out to me and I sent him a couple of videos of me singing. And the executive producer of The Voice was like, hey, if you can get through all the rounds. We'll push you into the TV round if you want to do it. And I just, I just have no desire. Like, it's just, I'm just like, I just have really embraced like, um, you know, first of all, when you sign that contract, you, you sign a contract. Like you're obligated to them, right? For a certain amount of time. And I just, I I wouldn't do that to my kids. Hayden doesn't have the music career he thought he would have. What he has instead is a life. I'm coming up to almost 11 years of being sober um, at the end of this month. So I think through all of that and seeing what I have now, and just by the grace of God being sober, I think for some of it, it's like, for me, I look back and go, you know, I don't know, like I might not have made it through being an artist. I don't think I ever wanted to risk going back and doing that because when you really have sobriety, like nothing really comes in front of that because you know how bad it was before. So it's like, I think all of this was kind of a precursor to where I am today. And like, you know, having a life and being sober and all of those things, I think has been much more rewarding than like having a little bit of fame or something else. And then being blessed with four kids who, you know, luckily they've never really seen their dad, like as a drunk, you know, I always felt like I was, I sort of, thought I could like make a difference. Right. And the only way I thought I could make a difference was by like being this singer and selling out concerts and being known for that. And what I've realized through all that is, you know, I can share my story, my hopes and my share my story with people and I can be a difference that way. Hayden Haidu. He survived nearly being famous. He survived the shame of coming home. He's made his impact, and he's happy. And that's good, because it's impossible not to root for the guy. In the meantime, I've done a little more digging on Sudden Impact. I have found one article about them. And it's not even an article. It's a stub of an article from a local Virginia newspaper's website. It came up in a Google search. And in the one line that I can read, they mention a Todd and a Noel, but only one full name, Aaron Kane. So I search for Aaron Kane's sudden impact, and that is the guy, for sure. That's the guy in the middle. The, the guy with the clip-on bow tie who looks like he's late for his shift at Buca di Beppo. He's still making music. He's got a YouTube channel, and he's on Facebook, and he's friends with Hayden. So I ask Hayden to put in a good word for me, and he says he will. Folks, we are one step closer to the inside of sudden impact. It's happening. We'll see how we do next time on Waiting for Impact, a Dave Holmes passion project. 
This has been an Exactly Right production. Written by me, Dave Holmes. Produced by Hannah Kyle Crichton. Recorded, mixed, and sound designed by Andrew Epen. Additional engineering and assembly by Annalise Nelson. Music by Ben Wise. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Executive produced by Karen Kilgariff, Georgia Hardstark, and Danielle Kramer. Follow the show on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Exactly Right. And follow me at Dave Holmes. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Binge the show ad-free on Stitcher Premium. For a free month, head to stitcherpremium.com slash impact and enter promo code impact when you select a monthly plan. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.